Welcome to Signs of Life, Exploring Survival of Consciousness, brought to you by Forever Family Foundation, on the web at foreverfamilyfoundation.org. Recording in progress. I call your name, the echo is haunting, the echo is always the same. I call your name, the echo is haunting, an echo can never be changed. So I call your name. And welcome to Signs of Life Radio. I'm your host, Bob Ginsberg, and I'm glad you can join us tonight. I'm excited about our guest, uh, Dr. Melvin Morse. Uh, He's a pioneer of near-death research, especially among children. And he's a retired pediatrician, honored as one of America's best doctors while on the faculty of the University of Washington. He has published numerous articles in medical and scientific journals on near-death experiences, uh, remote viewing and spiritual healing. His books, Closer to the Light on the Near-Death Experiences of Children and Where God Lives on the Neuroscience of Spirituality are international bestsellers. Some of his other books are Transformed by the Light and Parting Visions. He applies the lessons of the near-death experience to his research in the neuroscience of spirituality, applied remote viewing, energy healing, meditation, and personal transformation. He identified that humans have a God spot, an area of the brain that links them to the divine that that is both within us and of which we are a part. His organization, the Recidivism Prevention Group, facilitates spiritual transformation in the ex-incarcerated through meditation and yoga. Uh, Website is melvinmorsemd.com. Melvin, I'm so happy to have you back. Believe it or not, it's been 10 years since we last interviewed. Wow. Well, I'm just so happy to be back. It's it's yeah, great so, to see you, Bob. And, it's uh, my great. The, the good work that you're doing is is inspiring. Thank you. And and, and I could say the same for you. Um, let's go back to the to the beginning, even though you've probably been asked this a million times. But, um, you know, how does a um, pediatrician, you know, with a with a budding career, get drawn to near-death experiences and NDEs among children? I mean, what was the impetus that that started you on this journey? Well, Bob, I, I don't mind telling it a hundred times yeah. because that is near-death research is the cornerstone of spiritual understanding. And it, it is so solid and so <laughs> compelling uh, that you know, all, you know, the premonitions of death, after death communications, shared dying experiences, all of those things are validated because of the near death experience. And I, I, you know, I was, you know, I trained at Johns Hopkins, um, had just the traditional medical view, uh, you know, the consciousness is caused by your brain. When your brain dies, consciousness dies with it. Um, that That's what I always thought. Um, and uh, I was wrong. Uh, and I discovered that uh, when I uh, I was working for Airlift Northwest out of Seattle Children's Hospital, and we resuscitated critically ill children uh, throughout the Northwest. And I uh, resuscitated a young girl named uh, Crystal Merslock. And um, 
she was seven years old and nearly drowned in a community swimming pool. She was underwater documented for 20 minutes. So she's truly near death. And uh, her, uh, she, she had a Glasgow coma score, which is our way of, you know, rating how, how sick patients are, was uh, very low and very few patients uh, survive uh, as uh, critically ill as she was. Um, and uh, our team stabilized her. And then uh, she was transferred uh, to Primary Children's Hospital uh, down in Salt Lake City uh, and made a full recovery. And the first thing she said to the nurses when she uh, was recessed, you know, when she woke up was, where's Mark and Andy? And uh, those were her uh, playmates in uh, what she thought was heaven. Uh, I happened to see her, you know, there's no coincidences, Bob, you know, you know that, but it seemed like a coincidence. I just happened to see her uh, for follow-up. You know, I just happened to be working at a clinic uh, in Pocatello, Idaho, uh, just doing uh, some uh, extra training there. And uh, she she happened to come by uh, to be uh, checked by her private doctor. Um, And uh, she saw me walking down the hall and she looks at her mom and she said, there's a guy that put a tube in my nose. I don't like him. <laughs> that was a wake up call for you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I said, well, Crystal, you know, I know you very well. You know, I spent many, many hours, but, uh, you know, I'm sure you don't remember me. And she said, oh, yes, I do. And she went to describe everything that we had done to her, including putting her in a CAT scanner, which she called a big donut. Uh conversations that I had with the nurses. At one point, uh, I didn't know uh, how to best proceed. I called uh, my superiors uh, at Seattle Children's Hospital and asked them, you know, what am I supposed to do? She she, she said, she said, uh, and I heard you on the phone uh, asking someone what you were supposed to do. And she, and this to me, you know, this is not the neurology uh, that I was taught. No, um, and it challenged uh, everything that you were taught to believe in your trust. Absolutely, um, you know this is not this is this is defied. Uh, you know, her brain was nearly dead. Uh, her body was clinically dead, right. and yet here's here's how she described it, Bob. She she said it best. She said, "I wasn't dead. I wasn't dead at all. Some part of me was still alive." And she thought that that part of her then uh, went to a place that uh, she thought was heaven. Uh, she could look down uh, and saw her family. Um, she and, and how she got to heaven was <laughs> she she said that she was crawling on a long tunnel that was lined with bricks, and that uh, she felt frightened and it was dark, and that uh, a woman named Elizabeth came to her. And this woman uh, helped her. And this is, uh, you know, I'm I'm just going to digress here for a minute, Bob, because this is such an important point. There is no doubt, particularly for children, that someone or some person or some spirit or, you know, whatever it is, some consciousness accompanies them. They don't die alone. They don't make the transition to whatever, you know, the, the, the next life is alone. But the, the, somebody comes uh, to greet them. 
Uh, and that's described in adults as well. But certainly, uh, you know, because I think as as a parent, you know, we, we always fear uh, that, you know, that our child died alone. And that is not the case. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And, and, you know, the, the deathbed visions and these end of life experiences, I mean, I led me to the conclusion, just what you said, that although patients may not be um, able physically or, or mentally to be able to express it, that everyone has an escort to the other side. It's, it, it seems, certainly seems yeah. that way. You know, I, and it's an important point. Uh, I, you know, I had uh, a nurse. Uh, I worked in the intensive care unit at Seattle Children's Hospital, and you can imagine we we all were skeptical. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, you know, we were all very skeptical. Uh, and this nurse said to me, she said, you know, I still don't believe in life after death, and I don't believe in the survival of consciousness. But when my daughter died. And I saw everyone take her away, you know, into the room where we resuscitate patients. And I felt so guilty because I knew, you know, that the lines and the IVs were being started in her and the chest compressions. And she said, your research at least reassured me that someone or something was there with her while this was going on. And she was enormously comforted by that. Yeah. And that's the value of sharing. Um what we know, you know, about the research and, and these personal yeah. experiences. Now, now, Bob, I want you to think about this experience, uh, the, the, at least from my point of view. We initially just thought, you know, this is some sort of fantasy. Uh, you know, she's near death. Uh, her parents were praying, you know, at her bedside. Uh, they're deeply religious Mormons. Um and so we just sort of assumed, oh, you know, this must just be some sort of, you know, invention of her mind, uh, you know, to to explain, uh, you know, what happened to her. But think about it. She crawled down a tunnel lined with bricks and a woman named Elizabeth greeted her. I asked the uh, parents, I said, so what did you teach her about heaven? Well, they taught her the traditional things about heaven, you know, and um, they explained to her that when you die, it's like uh, taking a glove off, you know, and the hand that you can't see, you know, still is alive, you know, even though the, but that's how they explained it to her. There was no brick line tunnels. There was no, there's no Elizabeth to this day, uh, you know, Crystal's 40 years old now. And to this day, she has no idea who Elizabeth was, Uh, you know, it wasn't a family member. Uh, wasn't in their uh, spiritual, you know, the uh, uh, realm. You know, there were no angels named Elizabeth or anything like that. Yeah. But those are the things that convinced me. In addition to her describing her own resuscitation, those are the things that convinced me that this was real. Yeah. You know, these very odd and idiosyncratic aspects to the experience. Well, you know, that, that's what always fascinated me about your work because I, you know, I've read extensively about the you know, near-death experience research in, in, in adults, but not in children. You were a pioneer in that. And that um, what's intriguing is that, you know, children are so innocent and, and yeah. they're going to say uh, what they experience without being indoctrinated into societal and religious views and so forth. So I, you could trust the information more. Absolutely. And, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, just sort of uh, expanding on this idea that somebody 
um, helps us in this, uh, you know, at least particularly children, uh, you know, who are our most vulnerable um, and, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, accentuating what you just said. Um, we resuscitated this uh, young girl. She was about 12 years old. And this was back in the day, uh, you know, this was 30 years ago before we had GFI switches and bathrooms and everything. And she had nearly electrocuted herself. Uh, she was listening to a, a boom box that she had uh, positioned on uh, the bathtub while she was taking a bath. Yeah. And so she had a very difficult resuscitation. And but we finally, uh, you know, successfully uh, resuscitated her. And afterwards, she said to me, you know, I wasn't scared when I saw what you were doing to me. She said, because that nice nurse held my hand. And I said, what, what, what nurse? She said, you know, that, that she was all dressed in white. She, she was just sitting there. She was so pleasant and she held my hand and she reassured me and she told me that everything was going to be okay. Well, well, Bob, we don't actually have a nurse like that. <laughs> um, you know, this was, this was her spirit guide. This was our, you know, whoever it is. Right. Uh, but again, this is, she didn't put it in a religious framework. She didn't say it was an angel. She, as you point out, she described exactly what she saw. Right. She saw a woman dressed in white who was reassuring her that uh, she and the woman seemed to be watching, you know, us while we were attempting to resuscitate her. And she just made the assumption that it was a nurse. Yeah. Well, you know, so so the whole intriguing thing about near-death experience research in general is that people describe this clear and lucid thinking when clear and lucid thinking should not be possible. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, in meeting every de definition that medical science has, you know, for death and sometimes, you know, uh, no brain waves. Um, so, it, so it's just not possible. So. Uh, the theory is that um, our, our brains don't really have anything to do with these non-physical experiences. When the brain is not working, the information um, is still flowing. So, so, I, so, would you surmise then that after our brain is no more um, and the filter is gone, that we are just can can witness? pure reality instead of our invented reality yeah or or as the children said it was real it was realer than real right yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, you know to uh comment directly on what you've said you know it's clear that consciousness uses the brain that that's the only way to explain the scientific evidence but before we talk about that bob i just want to spend a moment reflecting on what you said that these experiences they're so clear. They're so lucid. They, they, they have the sense of reality, just as you and I are talking now. And I want to point that out because so many people think that these experiences are just hallucinations. Yes. And they don't understand that from a medical standpoint, they have nothing in common with hallucinations. Hallucinations are chaotic. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're the brain not functioning properly. Uh, you know, when you're hallucinating, um, you know, just like you know, when you're dreaming, it, it's nothing like, uh, the, uh, clarity. Uh, and, you know, and the, the, it's a, a coherent story that, you know, that, you know, they float out of their body. They, 
see a light. They have various interactions um, returning to their body. You know, these are not hallucinations by definition. But, you know, I think that, you know, just to to jump to the end, I guess, you know, because I've, (laughs) well, I'll, I'll tell you what inspired me was a young man said to me of his experience, he said, but was it real? Because if it's real, you better tell all the old people. (laughs) <laughs> right. So that's, you know, so I, that's why I'm interested in the neuroscience of spirituality. And that's why, you know, after my near death research, I spent the next, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years trying to answer that question. And really the only answer that makes sense is that consciousness uses our brain. And if it's true, as these children and adults tell us that we're here to learn lessons of love, that we have a specific reason that we're here on this earth. Well, then it only makes sense that that our consciousness needs a brain because how else could we interact with each other? How else could we have this, uh, you know, this, uh, this invented reality, if you will. Um, and once the brain is out of the way, once the filter is gone, then we return to our pure self. Yeah. And it's always, uh, I've always wondered whether there might be by design an area of the brain that um, facilitates, you know, these non-physical experiences. I remember years ago uh, interviewing uh, Rick Strassman, who does uh, about DMT, a DMT molecule. Yeah. Um, and then like in the middle of the interview, it like it hit me like a ton of bricks. I, I kept saying, well, why would we be designed not only humans, but plants and animal species, you know, with this um, hallucinogenic type of substance, you know, um, in our brains, um, there's everything has a reason, you know, exactly. So, you know, you know, maybe uh, in the the, uh, pineal gland might have uh, where supposedly the DMT is stored might be there just for that very reason of, uh, of letting us, gain access to these realms realms that are normally hid, hidden so this this uh you know addresses the issue of uh, uh you know it, so often i you know cuz I, I i live in the world of skeptics you know yeah. i live in the world of scientists and neuroscientists and so so often people say well these are just neurochemicals in the brain and my response to that is these are neurochemicals in the brain they're neurochemicals which allow us to see and inter- interact with, with God. And we came up with this theory in 2004. We felt that there was a God spot in our right temporal lobe. Since then, Bob, there has been no, no one has refuted us. You know, we published this in the medical literature and the scientific literature uh, and then in, in a book um, nobody's refuted it. There's no one has come along and said we were wrong. Um, in fact, there's been uh, two subsequent books. They said we were wrong. Mario Beauregard said we were wrong because he said it's not a God spot. It's a God brain. He said, <laughs> he said that our entire brain is specifically designed to interact with God. And, you know, and that makes sense from what I was telling you before. You know, if, if consciousness uses the brain, then obviously the brain has to have some connection with that consciousness. Yeah. And another guy who's a, he's a, he's a, I think a, 
a skeptic, but uh, his name's Roger Nelson, and he wrote a book, The Spiritual Doorway in the Brain. But he acknowledges that our brains are, you know, are, are hardwired to have spiritual experiences. Yeah. You know, that, uh, you know, many people, I understand this, what I'm going to tell you now. Many people can't take that final step and think that this is a real God. It, it's a hard, hard thing to, because it's so against how we're trained. And so that's why, you know, I know that, you know, people will, will acknowledge that we have this spiritual aspect to our brain, but then they'll say, but I don't believe in God. You know, they, 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 they can't see, you know, that final step. I don't get it. I hear what you're saying. Um, it's difficult. You know, with near-death experiences, I think that what has the, the biggest implication, um, the aspect of the near-death experiences is the life review. Yeah. For the simple reason that people describe, um, experiencing really feeling you know the good that they've imparted upon others and also and the bad uh, and that doesn't you know feel so good and they talk about judgment but it's all self-judgment self-judgment and so you know it's not where we go before a tribunal or a panel of judges or you know a deity says you go here or you go there we go, I mean, it tells us that we go where we belong with like-minded people. Um, and it's also a tremendous incentive to live your life um, in a way that will make your next life better. <laughs> so I, I think that's the true value of learning about the near-death experience. Well, you know, that's I, I just want to, that's why I started this off by pointing out how solid near-death research is. And I'd just like to briefly review that. Um, we published our findings in the American Medical Association's pediatric journals. Pen von Lummel, a Dutch cardiologist, pu- published his findings in The Lancet, which is arguably the, the world's most prestigious medical journal. So it's rock solid that the near-death experience is, in fact, the dying experience. And we can then trust what people tell us, what these children tell us. And one thing that I think is astonishing, uh, you know, in view of, of, of what you look at, you know, when you look around at religion, it's clear that this God that comes to us when we die is non-judgmental, that it's an unconditional love. So unconditional means that there's no conditions. Nazi prison guards have the same experience as these children have. You know that you know that, and and then you know that is in the Christian Bible. You know, grace comes to you through faith, not through works. But so think about that. You know that this is a the the judgment, just as you said, is the self judgment. But it's only possible when you're immersed in love, when you feel so loved that then you can let down your defenses and realize, wow. You know, I hurt somebody. I did something wrong that that caused another person pain. I, you know, I, I felt somebody suffering, and that's the kind of experience that they have. The other thing, you know, for for a, a lifelong overachiever like me, I, lo- I loved all the wonderful things you said about me in your introduction. But turns out, 
we know from the near-death experience that none of that is important. I, I, my, my favorite uh, life review is a woman who is a head of a, um, a pharmaceutical company. And like me, she's an overachiever her whole life and, you know, had so many things to be proud of. So in her life review, none of that comes up. All that comes up is that she was kind to a disabled child in summer camp. And that has profoundly changed my life, Bob. I can't tell you how, you know, knowing that, you know, the harm that I've done to others, that I'm going to feel that suffering, and knowing that it's small acts of kindness that make the difference. That's what the secret of life is, not some, you know, important uh, achievement. Yeah. Uh, those, you know, that has really profoundly changed my own life uh, yeah. from what I've learned from these experiences. Well said. Um, let me pivot a little bit because I know that one of the your areas of expertise is in remote viewing. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm fascinated by remote viewing. So let me tell you about an experience that I had, and you could tell me what was going on. Okay. Well, so I read, um, I read the uh, the books that were written going back uh, seventy, eighty years ago about remote viewing, and um, and I was fascinated and, and all the current research. So then, in two thousand and five, I decided to do a little uh, research project of my own. Not a scientific. I'm not a scientist, but I get to since I have this foundation, I get to play scientist and do some some things. So I, my instructions were simple. I just announced to membership that for five consecutive nights um, between the hours of, of 9 and 9.15 p.m. Eastern, I was going to think of some an image and I was going to draw that image. And I, and I said I was going to do this every night at the same time. And I asked anybody, even if they think they have no ability at all, to um join in you know at the appointed hour and it and you know this is in 2005 and email wasn't that prevalent so i I told them to mail in physically mail in their set of drawings to me and they did and 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 i purposely wouldn't think of what i was going to draw until um like 10 seconds before i was about to draw it and i'm a horrible um artist but you know, the, but saying I'm going to draw a picture, I mean, it's millions of possibilities that it, that it could be. So I, I did this for five nights, and on the last night, I said, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to mix this up. Instead of drawing a picture, I'm going to draw a geometric shape, and I drew a dot with concentric circles going around and around. So the thing ends, and we start getting in uh, the envelopes with all the uh, things, and quite frankly. I was disappointed, you know, I mean, I could stretch and make a couple of things fit, but it was nothing significant. And the very last envelope that came in was from a woman in in Bend, Oregon. I'll never forget it. And I opened up the envelope and I fell on the floor because she couldn't participate in one of the nights. But the other four drawings, two of them were exact and and they were in, you know, detailed things. including the dot with the geometric shapes and wow. the other, and the two other two images as as you well know um in the in the remote viewing research all the components were there but you didn't quite put it together in in the same as it was inverted and so forth but the fascinating thing to me and what, what hit me hard is that i drew those con- concentric circles on friday but she drew them on thursday 
So then I said, well, wait a second, who's remote viewing who? <laughs> yeah. but, 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 but the thing that was so fascinating to me and why it made such an impact, I said, okay, here I am sitting in New York with my brain in my skull. And, and here's this woman 3,000 miles away with her brain in her skull. Um, how is this possible? Um, you know, the only explanation would be that something – consciousness goes beyond the brain <laughs> you know so what's your explanation of this uh, uh, um especially that last thing with with drawing the the circles and i i'm drawing it the day after she is <laughs> well uh, first i want to comment on something that is the absolute mark of authenticity of what you've said is that you said that uh when she drew the other drawings that it wasn't put together, you know, the, the, the pieces were all separate. Right. And we know that human, the human brain has two hemispheres. And we know from split brain research, which I was part of when I was a medical student, that the right brain, the brain that's the part that's connected to this universal consciousness or God, whatever you want to call it, that part doesn't put all the pieces together. And so it it takes the left brain to then assemble the pieces. And they've done all sorts of fascinating studies in, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, split brain research in which they'll have, you know, a person look at, you know, like a an object. And sure enough, when the right side tries to draw it, it's just a bunch of, you know, shapes, but they're all accurate. They're just not put together. And then the left brain, the rational brain, that's the part that can, you know, that sees patterns, that understands uh, concepts. Uh, that part of the brain then assembles it. So, so clearly, um, you were describing something uh, that, you know, something real, that it wasn't uh, some sort of coincidence or something like that. Right. Now, the, the, I, I think I, I need to explain to you why I learned to remote view was these children, they tell me that at the point of death, when their brain is no longer functioning, they enter into another reality. In this other reality, time does not exist. And all information does exist. So it's an informational universe that's filled with love. Well, Actually, uh, the theoretical physicists tell us that that is the nature of reality, that uh, that time is just a construct uh, of our brain. You know, it's something that, that we need uh, to as biological creatures, but that uh, time uh, in the theoretical physics lab, it doesn't make any, you know, they can run their back, their experiments frontwards, backwards. You know, it doesn't seem to make uh, it doesn't seem to matter. So time doesn't exist in ultimate reality. And all information does. And so you, uh, I, I, I needed to know, you know, I can't prove whether there really is a God or not, but I could look at this issue of, is there an informational reality and do we have access to it? And that's what remote viewing is. So remote viewing is simply getting information from the informational universe. Hmm. You know, we, we put everything in little boxes. If it's a medium, we think that that's different than a remote viewer, than a psychic, than a clairvoyant, 
but it's all the same. You know, they're, they're just different ways of interacting with this informational universe and different ways of bringing back information. Um, you know, our personalities, we're, we're you know, our information, information that, that is eternal. Um, you know, so, uh, of course, uh, somebody could uh, access that information uh, and communicate with it. Why not? And that's what ha- you describe. So, so time, when you're in the realm of remote viewing, time doesn't matter. Remote viewers, get this, remote viewers actually do the, exactly what you described just for fun. They'll do the remote viewing first, and then they'll have somebody you know, completely who doesn't know anything about, you know, what they're doing, they'll have that person pick a target in the future. And sure enough, um, the remote viewers uh, can uh, remote view uh, a target, which is not chosen, well, in your case, till the next day. Yeah. Uh, and it makes sense because we're in, you know, you're in that, that, that ultimate reality. The real, you know, we can talk about God on your show. I know that, Bob. I mean, the, the reality of God uh, is that time doesn't exist, um, you know, in that in that reality. Yeah. We just we need time to, to mark our lives so that we can learn our lessons of love. I mean, how else could we learn if we weren't growing and developing and changing and making mistakes and learning from our mistakes? I mean, you know, it, it seems so easy to say lessons of love, but. You know, I work with a lot of grieving parents, yeah. and the death of a child is a painful lesson of love. Yeah. Um, and so we would not be able to learn those lessons if if time didn't exist in, in our reality. And yet, you know, we know that uh, ultimately, like your experiment showed, that uh, there uh, is, is, in fact, uh, no time. That, yeah. you know, when we return home uh, to this ultimate consciousness. Uh, you know, we're just immersed in love again. And it, and it takes a while to, to grasp this. I mean, I, I, speak, <laughs> speaking as a as a bereaved parent, you know, if somebody, you know, after my, my daughter uh, passed, if somebody said to me, well, this was a lesson you had to learn, I, w- I would have pun- punched them in the nose. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, I don't because- believe me, Bob. I, don't want, <laughs> I do not want to have any disrespect. Yeah. I, you know, I have worked with grieving parents and what a grieving parent once said to me, she, she said, here's the 10 things that a grieving parent never wants to hear. Right. And of course, I said all 10 of them. And yeah. I learned that it's best to listen and to be empathetic. So, you know, so, you know, on the one hand, when we're dealing with a personal situation, you know, of course, I, I'm, you know, on the other hand, as a scientific researcher, you know, you know, I, I can comment on, you know, this greater issue of these lessons of love. Well, absolutely. And we, you know, we're on the same wavelength. I mean, what, so what we do, because obviously we, we run all these grief retreats and we're constantly working, you know, with people, including uh, bereaved parents. And once, um, people can transform that vague hope into a, to a knowing or to a deep belief by learning about near-death experiences and deathbed visions and, and, and all these other concepts, um, 
there have been peer-reviewed studies that show that people that believe in an afterlife do better in the grief than those who don't. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, what could give you um, any hope at all except the belief and knowledge that your loved one still survives, you know, and it's a tremendously, as you well know, beneficial to, to those that, that are in grief. So, I mean, the work is, uh, speaks for itself. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, you know, so. Yeah, but I just, you know, I just want to emphasize that point that, you know, I, I, I have not lost a child. And so I'm not qualified to talk about it. I can only share, you know, a woman once said to me that grief is growth, but that's, something that she has to come to in her own time. You know, for me to go around and say, oh, yeah, grief is growth is is inappropriate, is is wrong. You know, we've been using the term, um, you know, which is one of your areas of research in spiritual neuroscience. And to the layperson, that seems to be a contradiction in terms of spiritual <laughs> yeah. and neuroscience. What well, I, I thought that too. When <laughs> yeah, I graduated yeah. from Johns Hopkins, uh, they weren't talking about spiritual neuroscience. Right. Well, how how would you define that for, for our listeners? I mean, you know, what, what is spiritual neuroscience? Spiritual neuroscience is the understanding that our brains are connected to the divine. And... Uh, there's, I mean, it's rock solid, the research showing it. But the importance for the non-scientist is that too often we ignore the the very things that can help us with grief. And and that that it breaks my heart when I when I when I hear that. That um because you were talking about peer-reviewed studies and such, we know that grieving parents, about 50% of them will actually see their child or perceive their child uh, in some form uh, after they've passed. Well, if you understand spiritual neuroscience, you know that your brain is permitting that experience to occur and that it's a real experience, just as real as this experience is. You know, this experience is also created by our brain. Um, You know, our eyes aren't video cameras. Uh, We take in information uh, from, you know, the sensory universe, and then we create a mental model uh, that, that, you know, that we think of as reality. And that that, so, so many times people dismiss the things that, that could, you know, have the seeds to heal grief. And if you understand that, near-death research validates all of these other things and to understand that the brain is a spiritual brain. It's set up for spiritual perceptions that are real, that then you can start to trust your own instincts. And you can start to, you know, when you have that experience of a child standing at the foot of the bed and saying, mommy, I'm okay, you can be assured that that's not some sort of hallucination or some sort of grief uh, induced dream that that's your brain functioning properly to process the spiritual reality. I, I know that you're um, a big proponent of, of meditation, um, and 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 so, I mean, how important is is meditation um, in our daily lives, and, and you know, and why? It's very important for me because most of our life is you know, our left brain, you know, constantly commenting, thinking about what this, what we did wrong today, 
what we're going to do tomorrow. Um, you know, the, this sort of endless interior dialogue uh, that all of us have. And I'm always, I'm always surprised. I, I think I'm the only one that, you know, has obsessive thinking about this, that, or the other. And then I talk to my wife, and then I talk to my daughters, and I talk to my friends, and I learned that we, we all have it. Yes. But that's not who we are. So many times people misunderstand and they think that that's their personality, that that's who they are. That isn't. That's just a tiny part of who we are. And we have a whole other part of us, which is silent, which, you know, is connected to the divine, but it's nonverbal. It it doesn't have words because words, of course, are concepts. And when you're interacting with reality, you know, the ultimate reality, you know, concepts disappear. So meditation is a moment that you can start to understand this silent part of you. And it, it's not, it doesn't take long. Um, I, I think that, you know, people, you know, they, they, I think they're afraid that, you know, they have to sit in a certain position or they, they have to, you know, it's, they, they have to quiet their mind or, you know, this out of the other. None of that's necessary. All you need to do is just sit in a comfortable position that you feel comfortable in and just start to notice and start to notice your own thinking. And instead of being caught up in it, step back and go, hmm, I seem to be thinking about my taxes again. I seem to be thinking about, you know, why uh, you know, this person seemed to have disrespected me again. And as you do that, you'll start to distance yourself from this internal narrator. And you'll start to tune in and find this silent part of you. And it's essential. Because we need to, our lives to be in balance. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that um, you, well, we know what a life out of balance is. And, uh, you know, it doesn't take much, 15, 20 minutes a day, just sitting quietly, just observing yourself, focusing on your breath can bring your life back into balance. So you've been doing this work now for many decades, you know. Yes. So, I mean, I have to ask you now, compared to 30 years ago, do you encounter any less resistance in in your in the scientific community and medical community to the things we're talking about now? Yeah, Yeah. I I think that there's been, you know, it it takes somebody like me that's been in the field for you know 30 plus years. Or, you know, Raymond Moody's my brother-in-law. I know. <laughs> and I've known Raymond for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And so, talk about a coincidence. Have, yeah. <laughs> but we talk about what, what I'm yeah. going to tell you now. Yeah. Is that when we started, it was just assumed that near-death experiences were just, you know, hallucinations of the mind or, or that people were mentally ill or maybe they were attention seekers. Basically, it was assumed by everyone that they were just making this up. And I think it it took, uh, frankly, I think it took our research in in children because we didn't permit children to come to us or parents to come to us with their stories. Instead, we systematically interviewed survivors of cardiac arrest 
at Seattle Children's Hospital. And we found to our great surprise that most of them had this experience, which at its heart is that lucidity at the point of death. You know, that, that it's contrary to what I learned, you know, the, the consciousness does not shut down, but you have an expanded sense of consciousness at the point of death. Yeah. And so uh, in the last 30 years, uh, like I, I alluded to this earlier, but basically everyone now agrees in spiritual neuroscience and the spiritual brain. And uh, nobody thinks that people are making this up. Uh, everybody knows that the research on this is rock solid. Um, the the only thing that it's left, you know, the, are the people who just, it's too hard for them to believe that this is proof of life after death or that it's, you know, or that it's proof of some sort of God. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's just, that's a matter of faith. But nevertheless, when neuroscientists say, well, this is just neurochemicals, uh, you know, you know, misfiring at the point of death. Well, all of our experiences are neurochemicals. This experience is neurochemicals. This is a very real experience. Uh, it's not a hallucination. Yeah. Um, you know, so, um, that's, that's a change that I've seen. I, yeah. I've really seen it that, you know, now the, the only people left are those who are sort of clinging to this outdated materialistic uh, paradigm. Um, and, and frankly, they'll always be clinging to it. We know from the history of paradigm shifts that the old guard really has to die out. And it's going to be the young neuroscientists when they become chairs, chairmen of departments. And when they, you know, are, uh, you know, refereeing the journals, you know, that's when you're going to see uh, this uh, transition. So, you know, we're probably 10, 20 years away from that. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, there's not many, but but I've interviewed, uh, you know, several physicists and and. and in talking to them, um, if I close my eyes, I would believe I'm talking to a spiritualist. <laughs> oh gosh, it, it's, it's the same every, thing. <laughs> every theoretical physicist is writing a spiritual book, and there's yeah. <laughs> you know they're all writing books about you know the Tao of physics and the you know the the similarities between the Tibetan Buddhists and modern uh, you know physics and <laughs> the, there's no you know when when I was telling you earlier that time doesn't exist. You know, every theoretical physicist uh, hearing this uh, knows that that's true. Yeah. Um, they, you know, basically what they say is if you are not astonished by the nature of reality from what we learn from physics, then you don't understand uh, what theoretical physics uh, is trying to tell us. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned that study that you did, and it's important um, because you had, I, I, I think it was, 22 out of the 26 um, children that were very close to death, you know, had some type of experience, but that you compared them to the 130 children um, who were very ill, you know, in intensive care, maybe uh, ventilated, uh, treated with drugs uh, and so forth, or maybe even had a lack of oxygen. And none of them, though, had an NDE. So, what does that tell us? That tells us what I was sharing with you before, that as we come close to death, then ordinary 
you know, the ordinary neurology uh, takes place. Those children that were very ill, they didn't remember anything about being in the hospital. And, and, you know, we know that trauma wipes out your short-term memory. So, uh, you know, so, you know, our control patients who had every reason to have a near-death experience, if if they were caused by a lack of oxygen or caused by drugs or, or what have you, none of them had any memories. It's only when we come to that point of death that suddenly the brain wakes up. And when I carefully ask the children to describe a timeline of what, you know, what their experience was, you can really see this uh, very vividly. Um, I'm thinking of uh, one uh, young girl uh, who came in uh, with infectious mononucleosis that affected her heart. And we had to put a needle in her heart to restart it. And that's near death by, by any definition. So here's what she remembered. She remembered being at home and talking, you know, with her family. Then she has no memory of the time that she fell unconscious, no memory of being transported to the hospital, no memory of being in the intensive care unit, no memory until finally when she is uh, out of the intensive care unit, her mother gave her a push-up popsicle. So a long period of nothing, except right in the middle of it, right when her heart stopped beating and we had to resuscitate her, that's when she suddenly regained consciousness. And she remembers that, that one episode, you know, right in the middle of it. And she, she told us, she said, I heard you calling for that crash cart thing. And I saw everybody running around. And, and then, you know, she said she was with her grandmother. And I said to her, well, you know, what was that all about? You know, and she said, I don't know. She was just sort of sitting there. And and then I was back in my body. I said to her, well, what do you mean by that? She goes, that's what I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> you, know, you know, so, you know, that, that, that pure innocence of, you know, like you were talking about before, you know, you know, she's not making that up. Yeah. But that, that type of, you know, when you really uh, quiz her closely, you know, that shows us that um, we lose consciousness when our brain stops working. But. When our brain's out of the way, when it's truly dying, suddenly consciousness comes back. And, you know, I know that, you know, the skeptics, skeptics agree with that. But it's just, you know, they'll very piously say, well, that's not proof of life after death. And, you know, maybe this is just some sort of evolutionary thing to make us feel better. Well, <laughs> you know, let's see, when people come to the point of death, and they suddenly see a God and they think there's another life and they feel like that they're still alive. Some part of them is still alive. Well, the logical explanation for that is it's probably true. <laughs> you know, right. um, I mean, that's just, you know, Occam's razor says that the simplest explanation is probably the correct one. It's true. Uh, you know, we're, we're, I, we're, uh, we're running out of time, but, but I just had to mention that it made me, when you mentioned Raymond Moody, uh, when I first started learning about all these things you know um like 2003 and so i i remember the the skeptics all claiming well you know these adult patients they just read raymond moody's books and and you know that's what they're repeating and i'm right. i'm like yeah but 
So Dr. Morse's patients are not reading Raymond Moody, you know, <laughs> that just reinforced it. Uh, I want to uh, let everybody know. So we've been talking with Dr. Melvin Morse. Uh, he's a pioneer in this stuff. Uh, I would recommend you pick up some of his classic books, Closer to the Light and Where God Lives. Um, or you may be fortunate to have his other books, um, Transformed by the Light and Parting Visions. You can learn more about his work at Melvin Morse. That's M-O-R-S-E-M-D dot com. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that Melvin is into. So we've only scratched the surface. So uh, there's a great deal to learn. He does great work and he's been doing it for many, many years. So it, Bob, I, I just wanna I just wanna tell people that my books are in your local library. <laughs> You know, you don't have to, you know, run out and buy them or anything like that. Uh, even in rural uh, South Carolina, where I live, um, you know, they have a copy of uh, all of my books there. So, you know, just go down to your local library um, and, you know, and, you know. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Melvin, thank you so much for joining oh, us tonight. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We'll have to do it again soon. It's, oh, it's, gosh, Bob, it's, it's like an hour was a minute, you know. <laughs> I know. Just I mean, so, there's so many things that we still have to talk about. I, I, I love the questions that you have. You know, they're the same questions I have. Yeah, well, we're, we're all uh, in the same uh, arena of, of research and, and grief, you know, and loss and and. Uh, so we very much model the foundation after the things that, that you've been doing. So thanks so much for joining us again. I'll talk to you soon. And everybody, thank you for uh, tuning in tonight. And we'll see you next time. Good thank night, everyone. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.